I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in welcoming Michael Schmidt and our five poets. At Carcanet, this is, I think, our favorite launch pad, and uh, it's so kind of the the, uh, the LRB bookshop to have us again and again. Um, there are people in the audience who were in New Poetries 5 and in New Poetries 4 and possibly even older New Poetries. Uh, new poets turn into old poets, um, as you can tell. Tonight, we're really launching two books. We're launching a book by Gileon Costi T, which He's a poet who featured in New Poetries 5, and we're launching New Poetries 6. Um, I hope you all have copies because I can give you page references for the reading. Um, if you don't have them now, just note the page references and you can, uh, and you can read them after. Uh, I'm going to do the introduction all at once so that I, uh, you don't have me popping up and down. Um, and I want to say first that I cannot imagine any editor running a poetry list without a magazine. My magazine, PN Review, has been the net into which have swum almost all the poets that I have published over the last probably 30 years. Uh, it's a wonderful net because you never know what is going to swim into it. And um, if it's a school of fish, it's always a school of truants. Uh, we don't have uh, obedient fish swimming into our nets. And I think the, the notion of truancy is, is a much underrated notion amongst contemporary uh, poets. So G, first of all, uh, G sent some poems to PN Review, and I was astonished by them. I didn't know anything about him. What I love about them, and he's going to read one of my favorite of them, uh, Attribution, later, is the way in which their, their candor is also filtered through a uh, relationship with other poets, with Ivan Boland, which is one of the things that really recommended the poems to me. In the first place, Elizabeth Bishop, another thing that recommended them. And his geographies and his, his world are very broad, and uh, his cadences are very much his own, and his themes are very much his own. So G will read from Steep T. And then we, we, we follow the order of the book. We start with Rebecca. Rebecca uh, Watts is a poet who um, I met in Cambridge. She's one of the poets in Cambridge that, I, that have meant most to me, who, uh, there are about four, I think. There's, there's Vanny, of course. There's Adam Crothers, who often... Breakfast with Rebecca and me at Bill's. Uh, and Adam is a very 
difficult and amusing poet. There's Alex Wong, who's also one of my favorite prosodists in the world at the moment, probably, probably one of the great prosodists of our time. Rebecca's a different kind of poet. Rebecca's somebody whose poems open on the world. You imagine that when she walks to work in the morning, she notices what the weather is, and she's very much alive to the things around her. Not that the other poets aren't, of course, but she's alive in a different way. And I really love the, the directness and immediacy of her poems. Also, whenever she writes about Wordsworth or writes out of Wordsworth or out of Butler or whoever it happens to be, she writes on her terms rather than theirs, which is always very beguiling. Joey is a, a poet who I, I met in in uh, Manchester where he did the, the master's program at, at the University of Manchester. He's, a, again, a poet who's who always appeals to my ear. He does all sorts of rather wonderful things prosodically. And he's a poet who's, who is always writing from experience in, in odd ways. He masters the long line in a quite, kind of unusual way. And uh, he's also a poet I value highly. These are all poets I hope we will go on to publish first collections by, or in the case of Vani, 15th collections by, because Vani is, Vani is totally unpredictable. She is, uh, as G collaborates with Evan Boland and Bishop Vanny collaborates with living people. She's a, a wonderful perform, performance poet, a performer, and uh, she's also a wonderful teacher and a very dear friend. So it's wonderful to have her on the on the on on the list. And we end with the notable, if not notorious, John Clegg. You all a legend before I met him. He was a legend in Durham. He's now a legend in London, and he's a, a, a wonderful bookseller. But more than that, I think he is tremendously informed, and his poems are ter- tremendously informed, and yet he is a wonderful prosodist uh, and a wonderful formalist. So again, we have, I, I hope, a treat in store with him. We begin with a beard and we end with a beard. Now, will, you now, will you now please welcome G and the author of Steep Tea. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, I want to thank the London Review Bookshop for hosting this event. Michael and the team at Carcanet, especially Luke and Alice, uh, for putting out my book, Steep Tea. I also want to thank Helen Tukey, who actually commented on the first draft of uh, the manuscript. The book begins with an epigraph uh, by the Renaissance woman poet, Amelia Lanya, who in her long poem, Salve Dios Rex Judeorum, Eve's apology says this. Eve, whose fault was only too much love. Eve's fault. God won her when he whipped out from his planetary sleeve a bouquet of light. They watched the parade of animals pass. He told her the joke about the Archaeopteryx, and she noted the feathers and the lethal claws, a poem, the first of its kind. On a beach raised from the ocean with a shout, he entered her, and she realized in rolling waves that love joins and separates. The snake was a quieter fella. He came in the fall evenings through the long grass, his steps barely parting the blades. Each time he showed her a different path, 
As they wondered, they talked about the beauty of the light striking the birch, the odd behavior of the ends, the fairest way to split an apple. When Adam appeared, the serpent gave her up to happiness. For happy was she when she met Adam under the tree of life. Still is, and Adam is still Adam, inarticulate, a terrible speller, his body precariously balanced on his feet. His mind made up that she is the first woman and he the first man. He needed her. And so scratched down the story, and so scratched down and believed the story of the rib. She needed Adam's need, so different from God's and the snake's. And that was when she discovered herself outside the garden. The next epigraph is from Ivan Bolan. From her poem *Marriage*, about Irish history. In the morning, they were both found dead, of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history. A whole history. The floor is cold with the coming winter. I pull on white socks. And sit down before the blackout window, to think about our separation closing in. We have a history longer than the two years, that fitted like a shirt. You learned a long time ago to enjoy ironing. I always had someone ironing shirts for me. But we go further back than birth. To furtive park encounters, coded glances, tapping on bathroom walls, ways of staying warm and white in winter. Yesterday, a young friend said it's wrong to expose children to a gay wedding. The chill hit me again. Rage spread like blood over my clean shirt. I cannot wash it off. You are no longer willing. In the closet, the shirt, part reminder of love, part reminder of rage, is held up by its shoulders on thin, twisted wire. The next epigraph and the book, as you can imagine, is all is organized according to epigraphs. is、uh, taken from、uh, Singapore's foremost women poet by the name of、uh, Li Juping. In the 1970s, she wrote this poem called "My Country and My People," that was actually banned from the airwaves because it was deemed insufficiently enthusiastic about nation building. <laughs> you can perhaps sense her ambivalence in these lines. A duck that would not lay, and a runt of a papaya tree. Recognition. Did you grow a bean plant as a school science project, noting carefully in a jotter 
book, the stages of growth that a dark green textbook taught. They did not say the books what to do with a fully grown bean plant. And so I reluctantly threw it down the rubbish chute, feeling bad at the thought of leaves squelched with gum, hair, chicken bones, the slender white stalk bent. Did you dig a hole in the schoolyard secretly and plant an orange pip, then watch the soil keep quiet? Did you keep chicks, all the children did, as if you were back in the village? After accidentally stepping on one to death, did you give away the other chick because someone told you that it would die if it lived alone? Did you hear that? Or did you, my country woman, hear another say, no one dies of loneliness? Or did you hear both voices, sometimes in competition, like car horns, sometimes in counterpoint, when you signed the divorce papers, when the senior minister in an interview regretted sending women to school, when you lectured on the romantics, remembering the bean plant cast away in its plastic mold, when your daughter shifted on your hip, when you wrote the home air conditioning, clicking, humming, raising goosebumps, a poem. And finally, I'm going to read you the poem Attribution, which also has uh, an epigraph from uh, Ivan Boland, from uh, her poem, The Mother Tongue. I speak with the forked tongue of colony, she writes. Attribution. My grandfather said life was better under the British. He was a man who begrudged his words, but he did say this. I was born after the British left, an alphabet in my house, the same book they left in school. I was good in English. I was the only one in class who knew bedridden does not mean lazy. I was so good in English, they sent me to England, where I proved my grandfather right, until I was almost sent down for plagiarism I knew was wrong and did not know was wrong, because where I came from, everyone plagiarized. I learned to attribute everything I wrote. It is not easy. Sometimes I cannot find out who first wrote the words I wrote. Sometimes I think I wrote the words I wrote with such delight. Often the words I write have confusing beginnings and none can tell what belongs to the British, my grandfather, or me. Thank you very much for listening. Emmeline's Ascent Back when her kind should have kept the fact of ankles to themselves, 
it was mildly surprising that from the ground, where her neat boots were tied with satin bows and her knees, unremarked on, stood fixed beneath a triple skirt and had not one single scar to boast of, she thought to ascend the small stepladder, borrowed for the job from someone's father, and loosely grasping the hand of a stranger, swing brilliantly from the hip, one long athletic leg over the rim into unsupported territory, without even a pale second given over to the fear of falling the five shameful feet back to zero from such a high wheel. And that once in the saddle, she recognised herself seeing not what she never before could have imagined, but everything exactly as it was. The clear, hard road made for going along, the terraces lined up for her admiration, and on the other side of the clipped hedge, the unhatted men in the park, a few streets but fantasies away from closed offices, airing the first hint of their balding crowns to the pigeons, and anyone else geared up for once to peer down on them from above. Um, the world has a habit of putting animals in front of me, and sometimes they're dead, which is very sad, and sometimes they're alive, which is terrifying. Uh, so I'm going to read two poems about these times. Two Bats. The first I met was a baby, an accidental landing on the pillow. Four floors up, the night was hot and the window wide and receptive as an eye. Though it hadn't meant to come, its two short flights cast suspicion on the room before it joined us, trembling. In the lamplight, it was little more than fur and wing, no bigger than a thumb, a pulse. Humbled, it held still as we slid the pint glass under, then raised it slowly to the moon. The second was sent. Full grown, it knew its way around the landscape better than I, who'd thrown the sash down early to inhale the view and been carried away across moors, so the creature slipped in at dusk unnoticed. When I hit the switch for the big light, it flung itself back and forth above our heads, a glove issuing a challenge over and over. No instincts rose. Perhaps we were too familiar. Perhaps we already knew that if it settled, we'd be repulsed by black eyes, thin wings, bared teeth like a little man's. Instead, we waited sheepishly on the landing, not looking at much, while someone else, nobler with a tea towel, dealt with it. Afterwards, though we were left to sleep, something hung on in the dark between us. The Mole Catcher's Warning Nobody asked or answered questions out there. Ten miles from the nearest anywhere, the landscape was a disbanded library. Only the moles remained, strung on a barbed wire fence, a dozen antiquated books forced open. It must have been the northeast wind, 
or a bandit crow starved a familiar company that picked them over so. Not a scrap hanging on inside the stretched, torp skins, their spines disintegrating. Read in me, they wanted to declare, how it all ends. But the threads which once had a hold on their soft hearts dangled loose and crisp, and their kin can't read anything but earth. The next poem is inspired by a couple of phrases proverbial in China, which I read about in a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker, which I highly recommend. Letter from China. Bare branches prick the landscape. It is not the force of nature that holds the country in perpetual winter, but the facts of arithmetic and a fear of winter. Ask the elderly, they know what life costs. Once forced to sow seeds, eyes fixed on the future, they envisage themselves slipping into the river of old age and reckoned that a son could keep them afloat, but a daughter is like spilled water. So it was, that those who reached the light were dealt with quickly, shushed in a bucket beside the bed, while those whom fortune allowed to be glimpsed, curled in the dark womb, were dislodged, dug out, disposed of, before they could begin to flower, to make way for boys with stronger shoulders, fit to carry parents. This was the calculation that was their hope. Now we live in a lopsided sum, looking on to a wilderness where scores of unsettled men conspire. Bare branches on which our future hangs. Hopeless together, they clamour for fire. And I'll finish with this shorter one. Turning. Now it's autumn. And another year in which I could leave you is a slowly sinking ship. The air has developed edges, and I am preparing to let myself lie in a curtained apartment, safe in the knowledge that strangers have ceased to gather and laugh in the lane below, and the brazen meadow no longer presumes to press its face to the window like an inquisitor. Soon, even the river will evince a thicker skin. My breath each morning will flower white, and all of summer's schemes will fly like cuckoos. The leaves are turning, and the trees are shaking them off. Bonfire smoke between us, like a promise, lingers. Thank you very much. Hello, uh, my name's Joey. Um, I quite like being uh, compared to a fish swimming into Michael's net. Um, although there's only the second best comparison that this um, anthology's engendered. The best, of course, if anyone saw it, was John's blog post, um, which, which found for each contributor a, a classic country album that they shared an affinity with. I got uh, Dolly Parton. 
Um, so I had this fun. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's see about beginning the reading by striding in from the back like a pro wrestler or a darts player with Jolene blasting out um, and everyone could sing Joey instead of Jolene. It was a beautiful dream. Um, but maybe, maybe at the end... Um, <laughs> Um, I'm going to read a poem. Um, It's called The Finest Fireproofing We Have. It's a poem about a father insulating his family home, written sometime in 1924. It notices the poem, the knotted rope of his spine through his flannel work shirt as he hunches to the skirting. His intent fingers are working loose the dark wood, panel by panel and pressing in material from the roll of asbestos matting behind him before precisely replacing the board. With aching thumbs, he rocks its nails back into their beds as the poem settles its nouns into their gullies, investing itself as fully as it can in how unflinchingly this father, out of the dust of 1919, how fully this father surrounds with love his young wife, their new son, It drags and dwells on this love. It weeps for it, almost. This love inhabiting 1919 and written of in 1924. There's love in the way the panels are pried up and replaced. And something else. How the poem's author, reading of the medical board's classification of asbestosis in 1925, how he was reminded of that young wife arriving home, and the pride already metastasizing inside the husband how she'd never know how anything behind the boards had changed. Um, So I also want to thank Michael and Helen and everyone at Carcanet for making this uh, amazing book, and for choosing these poems of mine, which I'm sure are my best poems but it turns out my best poems are unrelentingly miserable um so um so from that poem about asbestosis we'll move on to two about doomed or ruined love affairs and then a short one at the end about how free will is a sham and how the soul is a vanity um um, this one's called a brief glosser a glosser's uh as in glossary it's where you take four lines of a poem and uh use them as the final line of four stanzas of your own uh Usually the stanzas are ten lines long each. This, these, these are only six. This is a brief closer. Um, the lines I've stolen are from Yanis Ritsos, a poem called Moonlight Sonata in English. They go, I know that each one of us travels to love alone, alone to faith and to death. I know I've tried it. It doesn't help. Let me come with you. So my poem, a brief closer, goes like this. 24 days, really, all told, straggling Manchester's dive bars until five for the pretext of drink between the kitsch and neons as if there was no agony keeping our bodies apart. Three-something weeks there, and then perhaps 3,000 emails, Manchester to France, praise be for smartphones. I know that each one of us travels to love alone, but this, this is surely unnecessary. By the time you left, we'd settled to a nightly routine. The temple, the thirsty scholar, 
the failing black dog ballroom always open desperately until dawn with always a floor to ourselves the cluttered inbox of lust already blinking in my chest and then we left alone to faith and to death as in the time you took me back to the place you shared with your absent fiancé to read me the Greek of Yanis Ritsos in Greek until the sounds worked by your tongue brought your tongue too much into focus. Certain lusts can be swallowed. That noble, necessary gulp, I know. I've tried it. It doesn't help. Ritsos, with his faith and his death, is thinking more of that intricate, momentary balancing act, the fiddle of drink and time by which we can hope to produce our presentable selves, the phone screens and mildewed old editions of the old translations you left me, all we believed we could afford to issue. Let me come with you. The next one's called Untitled. If you look at it quickly, it looks like it says Untitled. Um... <laughs> it's a trick. Um, untitled. The orthodontic meddling of language with the world, its snaggling malocclusions between a group of objects and their name, or the unnameable collusion of object and fact which fritter truth like a spendthrift thrush its energy in song. The determined unorthodoxy in the solitary stance of a dock leaf, miles from the nettles we suppose are its cause. All I want is to tell you that I love you. But true tessellation is a term from a diagram on your primary school classroom wall. And the jaws have already sprung closed over the moments, albeit gappily. And I'm stung into refuge among such exquisite cosmetic meaninglessnesses as the awkward stagger of a branch across the sky above me as it divides the day's blue into jagged, arbitrary portions. All I want is to propose that we be wrong in corresponding ways. Um, and I, in fact, in fact, <laughs> in a departure from the advertised program, I'm not going to finish with that other poem about the soul and free will and things. It's, um, I'm going to read this one, which has slightly more hope, hope in it, I think. It's called Poem in Which Go I. There but for the conciliatory haze of fiction go I. There, but for the crazy kindness of strangers, go our crises of identity. There, but for the salt wind off the sea, goes the gold-drenched memory of 1992's family holiday. There, but for the greys of fog, go we. There, but for the winnowing of Yahweh, go so many of our quaintest folk statuettes. There, but for the faintest sense of justice, goes the conciliatory haze of fiction. There, but for the uncomfortable persistence of humanity, goes the neighborhood. There, but for the harrowing frequency of laundry days, goes the grace of God. There, but for the slough of despond, goes our Christian. There, but for one specific curtain of palm fronds, goes the amber clarity of our faith. There, but for the goes of going, walks our Lord. There, but for the goes of saying so, goes all. Thank you. In the winter of 1994, the artist Louise Bourgeois was experiencing insomnia, so she used a red felt pen a lot of the time, to draw and write images and texts, often on music paper. Ian Morrison at the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh commissioned some poems from me for an all-night event. From Louise Bourgeois, Insomnia Drawings. She courted sleep by drawing sheep, 
than one was drawn to her. Friendship, if I stretched wide enough, I could give birth to a child like you, a round-eyed barrier against normality. A rare breed indeed, not a Marie Antoinette pet, legendary plus que prehistoric, a sheep like you at my knees and pre-ruined trade routes at my feet, and we would be in Sumeria. Dans la nuit it was lost, a closet heterosexual. My children's successful sleep rendering me anti-maternal as if my body had not gaped was a gap, was immaterial. So I placed my hands between my legs, found fleece, began to pull, till wonderstruck I ushered you into my studio, away from the world, from the waking world. Peaceable and only slightly sinister, since languageless and eager in your bleating about the silence, brushing up against us from all sides, my darling newborn ancient beast, unboxed and not for sacrifice, I count on you. Take us away, cross another and another style, nibble your way through the hedge of mist springing from the Hudson, through the thorns of light thrown up by the Atlantic, voyage safely amicable sheep into France, no questions asked. I would flatten with you into tapestry, my hair and yours washed by handfuls in the river, vu que in profound night and these circumstances, it is déjà as if insomnia hangs us, already hooked to a wall. The poet transformed into a heat haze, and it was not a hot country but occasionally hot, though not by decree nor description, even a day like this, where it rained fiercely on sheets of sun, jubilant about heat, but denying hotness. Not a hot country, and it drove the insects in droves, it drove drivers off roads, drove drivers into whatever grows on the sides of roads, and roads. Roads became what happened to be passing by because I melted them and beggars died too shy to beg for drinks because it's stupid to feel the heat, admit to feeling the heat and to not liking it and not to liking it, but to feeling everything twice as thick, feeling at all. The stream sucked it up, milled on wordless, the trees rebelled, oh love, voted with their roots, forgetting how to vote, vowing their all to, as a leaf double, shape, shade, light, a stitch up. I'll do just two more poems. In the second poem, A Stag Dies, so if this upsets you, please start being upset and get over it uh, quickly or not. Pobrecilio Tam, only I do not like the fashion of your garments. You will say they are Persian attire, but let them be changed. King Lear, Act 3, Scene 6. 
Raise your game, said my friend, lucky in love since going online to learn moves that lead from geek to player. Go to the big Baldwin City, life's laid out like your sister's tea set. That time she spilled the milk and didn't cry for a real melting knife. Shammied my head and was going, radiant as a hermit's cave in Cappadocia. Fled him and my other dogs and wallpapered my sister's braced smile and carious photographs. Well, Caramel, you can cross, pass, shoot for the stars, scrape sky for a living, but don't hang your washing from the window, the old man doesn't like it. And see that tree? It translates, spring will bring again, breadstone scorpion to hand, always afternoon, if once you stand in his light. I prayed for liftoff and became a little horse shadowed by an always car. I prayed for inside, needed shadow like a crown on my head, lived off foods composed of substitutions. Lady of situations, I pray for liftoff, tailoring my head and bust to rise above the city of Ankadare nature, pushkin types, fatalistic pedestrians who are at the start of my game, who are my true loves, if only their hearts were Gabriel, and not being Borges to death, staying off the drive-by streets, mummified in the seven-sealed orifices, first named home. That was written in an hour as uh, an ekphrastic, uh, sorry, that's a bad word for you, Michael, isn't it? An ekphrastic response uh, to uh, an image on a site called Visual Verse, created by Preeti Taneja, and uh, there's an image every month, uh, and it's a kind of honesty box principle. You can send her a thing if you've written it in an hour. Now, my last poem is called Stalker. It's written for Katie Grant, uh, who has written one of the sexiest novels in the world called Sedition, and it's also full of music. It's much better than... Well, it, sorry, I can't say that here, can I? It, it's very good. <laughs> Stalker. He waits. Without knowing me, he waits. The tips of branches, edible and whiny, Bring spring by suggestion to him who in autumn dawn, eager with wet knees, disregards me, being drawn by me. He waits and in me he waits. I branch, the form is branching, it bounds like sight from dark to bright to back again, the form is from me, it is him, poem, stag, first sight and most known. In him I wait, when he falls, needs must, hot heap. Nothing left over, tree-like no longer, nor forlorn. We're totaled. Thank you. Lacklight. At first, we didn't call the dark the dark. We saw it as a kind of ersatz light, a soupy substitute that shucked the hems and wrinkles 
from our objects. That was nice. And later on, we learned to love the dark for what it really was, admired how, unlike a candle, it could fill a room, unlike a torch, it focused anywhere, unlike a streetlight, it undid the moths, unlike a porchlight, anywhere was home, unlike a star, it couldn't be our scale. In utter darkness, we were halfway down. Then came the age of lacklight, loss of measure, darkness turned inside to cast a darkness on itself, though age would make it finite. Perhaps we're stuck there, straining in the lacklight. Still, across the last however long, I've noticed something budding, vaguely sensed a nerve untie and reconnect itself. I think my lacklight eye is almost open. Um, this poem's about uh, doing something foolish and the moment when it can't be rescinded, but you're aware of it all the same. Um, it is based on the, the fact that apparently if you... Uh, Alison will know this perfectly well. Uh, if you try and lasso a horse or a, or a steer or similar, uh, the great thing to avoid is getting your finger or thumb caught in a loop in the lasso because then when the, the steer pulls away, as it certainly will, um, you're, it, there'll be a great pressure on your thumb and it will shoot off. Um, I, I thought very much that this was something restricted to the Old West. And uh, I read this poem in Cheltenham and afterwards was told by the poet Anne Drysdale that this had happened to her as a youth and she allowed me to touch the uh, ring of flesh where they'd attached the, uh, the thumb after, after the fact. It was a long time ago, I believe, uh, but you could still make it out perfectly, a white raised ring of flesh. Um, since then I've sort of, after the fact, thought of this poem as dedicated to her. Uh, the lasso. That I had time to think, I still have time. Not to correct my grip, but drop the rope before the lasso fell and yanked away the loop I'd somehow knocked around my thumb. That I had time to notice I could think, and that the time to think in was reserved for thought, like hours in a monastery. I knew, because I saw, and still held on, that I had time, time sinking like the rope around the moment's neck, and I had thought, like slackness in the rope, the little loop that half a moment's tension would wrench true. That I had time and then the time was taut. My thumb, erratic firework, shot past. And in the time reserved for me to breathe, I felt my wrung hand tighten on the rope. Di asked for a poem about a country singer. Um, Jimmy Rogers, um, perhaps the first white bluesman, who fulfilled Leadbelly's prophecy or invocation that uh, never a white man had the blues because they're just not worried enough, by being absolutely unworried and mellow throughout his life, being one of the happiest men in the world, a brakeman on the Santa Fe, um, who ended up dying very, very young of tuberculosis, 
and wrote the TB blues before he died. My good girl's trying to make a fool out of me. My good girl's trying to make a fool out of me, trying to make me believe I've got the old TB. And it's hilariously funny. Stanza by stanza, it's funny, and funny mounts on eye, and it's heartbreakingly sad. Um, this is named after one of his songs, T for Texas. Um, every source seems to take it as read that in those days, Brakeman was synonym for agreeable, that his yodel mimicked, lyrebird fashion, a train whistle's dip and wheel, its Doppler ripple through gaps in the rock wall, though now it sounds more like a trick of the wind down an empty canyon, plaintiveness in his voice, mistaken for plain good nature. TB in German translates as addiction to dwindling. The next train does not call in this station. Um, I'd like to thank um, Michael, Helen, who can't be here tonight, um, the general team at Carcanet, um, Luke, who in that last poem, I believe, corrected um, my umlaut over Doppler, uh, which certainly shouldn't have been there. No matter how many times I put it back, he resolutely, uh, <laughs> resolutely took it out. Um, so good work. Uh, good work, Luke, and good work, Wikipedia. Um, and um, I'll close on the final poem in the anthology. Um, as about three quarters of the room is perfectly aware and will find it tiresome to be reminded of, um, Rilke's, I was going to say dictum, but it's not a dictum of any sort. It's the last line of his um, poem on the archaic torso of Apollo. And the way the poem is presented, it feels very much as if it's his uh, condition for art to be art at all. Now change your life, as if this is the message that one should take from any artwork. I think this is unpractical and facetious. Um, a peach tree for Jack Baker. Things grow around particularities. A footpath dog-legged at a field boundary. A feral peach conniving with the angle of a roof to funnel sunlight through its leaves and pericarp. Jack said that certain poems could bend thought like that. The auroras of autumn, he mentioned. We can be sure that no one reads a poem Rilke's way. Now change your life. Bam. Now, presumably, change it again. You'd never get through an anthology. <laughs> really, to read properly is to buzz low over our future lives in a crop duster, throwing out stumbling blocks. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 